It's Thursday, July 1st. From the Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis and interviews based on the newsletter, News Items. Oh, it's hard to come up with more superlatives to describe the red-hot U.S. housing market. It's been on a tear for the past year and counting. The most recent S&P Case-Shiller National Home Price Index, released earlier this week, rose 14.6% in April, its highest reading in more than 30 years, while its 20-city composite, a subset of this data, which reflects home prices in major U.S. metro areas, showed a year-on-year increase of nearly 15%, the largest since December 2005. So are we nearing a top in the U.S. housing market? Is there more room to run? And should we be alarmed? For insights, I'm delighted to be joined by Glenn Kalman, CEO of Redfin, the publicly listed online home buying portal. Glenn, it's great to have you on News Items here today. Ah, thanks for having me. <laughs> Fun to be here. So, yeah, so busy year for you all at Redfin, I take it. It's been a wild ride. So there's been no shortage of bullish indicators, as we mentioned in the intro. Much has been made of the median U.S. home price breaking above $350,000 for the first time. Uh, That was a recent data point that came out. But I noticed that Redfin's economic team may be sussing out signs of a slowdown. I think last week your economic team noted that the Redfin Home Buyer Demand Index dropped below 2020 levels for the first time this year. So is Redfin calling a top on this market? At least for the time being, ever since Memorial Day, mm-hmm. home buyers have been taking a break. I think people are coming back to their regular lives mm-hmm. where they're going out to eat and visiting shopping malls and going on vacation. And so mm-hmm. this nonstop obsession with the U.S. housing market has <laughs> finally gotten a reprieve. And it's probably good for the market just because demand has been through the roof. People have been so frustrated more than half of homes are selling for above the list price. Right. I'm used to seeing bidding wars in San Francisco or New York or even right. Seattle, but to see them in Tulsa, Oklahoma or Boise, Idaho, that has been a real trip. What's driving that kind of market dynamic? Is it because of the technology that enables people to sort of compare price points on houses in vastly <laughs> different locations? What is it? Is this like the unintended consequence of all this technology? I wish we could take credit for it, but I really think (laughs) it's just the liberation Mm -hmm. that people feel about where they have to work and live. So you've got so many people leaving higher tax states, California, New York, and other places for the center of the country just because they don't have to be in an office five days a week. Mm -hmm. And what many realize is that you can stop working in many cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, At least one parent can stop working if your housing cost goes from a million dollar property to a three or $400,000 property. So mm-hmm. you've just got Californians showing up in Oklahoma and Alabama with monopoly money, convinced mm-hmm. that even if the homes increase by 50%, it's still a steal compared to San Francisco or LA. So here's a question for you then, in terms of just the supply-demand-price relationship. So uh, we mentioned the Redfin Home Buyer Demand Index. The Commerce Department said last week that the supply of new homes rose 15,000 in May to uh, 330,000. So that's that's about 5.1 months supply at the current sales pace. What is the typical lag period between an inventory buildup in the housing market and reflection in price. Is there sort of like a general time frame you could say once we start to see inventories build, then prices will come down in X number of weeks or months? Generally, if you have higher inventory, you see prices come down in three to six months, but I'm not sure that inventory has increased that much. It's still down 34% Mm -hmm. from 2020. We would love to see even more inventory on the market. The primary gate on sales volume is just the number of homes for sale. There are still more buyers than sellers by a wide margin. So I think we're going to see a more normal market where price increases decelerate 
typically you want to see that in the low single digits, not 15 or 25% year on year price growth. So my hope is that the market just takes a breather. And I think that what you'll see is prices flatten out, mm -hmm. but not actually go down. To see them actually go down, you'd have to see nine, 12 months of supply. And we're still in most markets uh, closer to three. Do you think that we're seeing irrational exuberance in selected housing markets? Maybe. I just think there's something fundamental behind it. So uh -huh. Redfin was one of the first to call the 2008 housing crisis. Uh, we knew there was a bubble because so many buyers weren't buying the property to live in it. They were buying yeah. on speculation and they were highly leveraged. So they'd borrowed up to their eyeballs. And in this case, uh, credit scores are fairly high. Lending standards are very tight. Mm -hmm. And people are moving because they want to live in these homes. So mm -hmm. there's starting to be some speculation among institutional investors who are trying to buy up single family homes right. just mm -hmm. because there's such a great market for it. Mm -hmm. But among most consumers, people are buying because they fundamentally want to live somewhere else, not because they're betting on a rational exuberance. So that's mm -hmm. the reason that I think this market is different. I just don't think there's as much leverage in the market. And I think the reasons people are moving are really legitimate, that they're now free to move about the country. They can work wherever they want. You talked about sort of the demand drivers behind the heat in the housing market. But what about uh, the impact of maybe less new home construction because of all these shortages for lumber and other building materials that we've been hearing about since really since the onset of the pandemic? How much is that a factor? Oh, it's definitely a factor. And I think there's not just a shortage of supplies, but also of labor. The United mm -hmm. States has changed its immigration policy and yep. the construction industry has always been dependent mm -hmm. on lots of skilled labor coming in from different countries, but also unskilled labor. Mm -hmm. So having a dearth of both lumber, other types of building supplies, and the people to build the homes has been a mm -hmm. real problem. When you talk to builders five years ago, what you heard is that it was a land shortage, that mm -hmm. they were trying to buy land to develop homes in Seattle, mm -hmm. in Miami, in New York. And that can be very, very expensive. But mm -hmm. now that people are moving out to the exurbs, out to the edges of every major city, land is more plentiful. And it's just a question of how fast we can build these homes, given the shortage in supplies. Is your team looking at a specific, say, lumber futures price or a specific leading indicator that might signify a pickup in new home starts? Maybe it would be a labor number or, you know, jobless claims number. I don't know. What, what might it be that would give you a, an indication that new construction is going to pick up? Well, lumber costs are starting to come down. Um, there's still a labor shortage, and I think that's going to be significant. Builder confidence dipped a little bit in June just because the builders are seeing the same thing we are, mm -hmm. that home buyers did take a break starting with Memorial Day. Mm -hmm. So I think there's going to be lots of homes built over the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. Plenty of politicians have gotten religion on this point when before <laughs> NIMBYism was a really strong current, especially in coastal cities. Mm -hmm. So I think there's going to be plenty of construction, but maybe the temperature has come down from 105 uh, to 100 degrees. So this, you know, just as to sort of follow on from that, you mentioned that politicians have gotten religion on this point and that nimbyism has been a factor in recent years. So what's changing now? What are, when, you, when you say that this is, that there's like a sort of change in the, a sea change in the way that politicians view home construction, what do you, how do you think this is going to play out? Well, some of it is that people have voted with their feet. So mm -hmm. if you are running a city like San Francisco or New York and you see so many people leaving for affordable housing, you realize that you've got to invest in that. But it's also just true that people are moving to states that have traditionally been 
very friendly to developers. Mm-hmm. So you have a place like Minneapolis, mm-hmm. which said that there can't be single family onies only. We now have to let builders um, do single family homes or multifamily properties on any piece of land. Mm-hmm. And then you have other places that are just really aggressively embracing the single family trend, even though it leads to sprawl and sort of an environmental disaster. And I think the places that are embracing sprawl are the ones that are growing the fastest. Just see Atlanta, see Nashville, look at what's happening in Texas. Most people are willing to live further away from the city because they don't plan on commuting. So are you seeing evidence of sellers starting to become hesitant to list their own homes despite the, you know, despite the excess of buyers because they'd be priced out of their own market if they wanted to buy a new property, upsize or downsize? That's been the case for a long time. One of the reasons that inventory crises are self-perpetuating and real estate is so cyclical is that once you have a seller's market, it actually freezes up the inventory. For years, people Mm -hmm. have said, well, I want to list my home, but I'm shopping and I can't find another place to buy. And so they really get stuck. And one reason that iBuying has taken off as a trend where somebody gives you cash on the spot for your house is just because people wait to list their property until they find the home of their dreams. Mm -hmm. Credit reform has limited your ability to hold two mortgages. So the day you see that house is the day you got to have the cash and you turn to an iBuyer like Redfin Now or there are other providers in the market Mm -hmm. to get immediate liquidity. But it's really put people trying to move up in a crunch. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little about Redfin's iBuying algorithm and how that's maybe been affected by the strange dynamics of this market? I mean, is, is Redfin maybe more hesitant to make an offer on a home and hold it in your inventory because of the way prices are? How, how do you manage for that? We've gotten slightly less aggressive mm-hmm. just coming into uh, June and July, just because we do think that prices are not going to accelerate at the same rate. But I think mm-hmm. you just have to compare that to how we were in March, April, and May when we were very aggressive. So the original premise of iBuying was just to buy a house and be able to turn it very quickly where you're selling it for nearly the same amount and you're mm-hmm. charging the owner a fee for the convenience. But many iBuyers basically became real estate investment trusts over the past six months where the longer you held the property, the more money you made with prices going up 20, 23% year on year, there's just no penalty for having a house sit on your books for an extra few months. In fact, you just were able to sell it for more money. And that forced all of us to price that into our offers. When we talked to somebody owning a home, looking at listing it through a traditional brokerage, looking at listing it through Redfin's alternative brokerage, or taking cash on the barrel, we just had to pay up because it was so easy to sell a house. So I think the iBuying market is becoming a little bit more grounded than it was. Mm-hmm. Now, we talked a little earlier about how this market, this 2020-2021 bonanza, is different from the run-up to 2008 and the great financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, you know, there are some different dynamics at work. But there have been some concerns raised at levels of some of the regional feds that either the Federal Reserve should stop buying mortgage-backed securities or that it might want to signal that it eventually plans to stop buying mortgage-backed securities, which currently it's, it's, it's buying $40 billion in MBSs uh, every month, or maybe raise interest rates much earlier than anticipated, that that might have a dramatic short-term effect on the housing market. Where do you stand on that? Is that something that would create like a... I don't know, a crash type scenario or take a lot of the hot air out of this market in a very sudden way that might burn some people? 
Well, it would certainly be a very sharp correction if the Federal Reserve raised interest rates. I don't think we've properly accounted for just how tough the housing market got in the second half of 2018. Maybe there was a 50 or 75 basis point rate increase, which was fairly modest given that rates were at two and a half or three percent. But people freaked out yeah. and home buyers really withdrew. Mm -hmm. They were not as eager to bid on properties and suddenly we had listings that were sitting. So I think that could happen again. There is plenty of inflation pressure in the market, right? but there are also just a lot of people who want to buy. So going up a quarter point, probably wouldn't be a dramatic effect. But if interest rates went up to three and a half or 4%, mm -hmm. uh, I think there's some home buyers who just feel entitled to a 3% rate and it would really change the calculus of what they could afford. And that would have a strong effect on the housing market. So can you talk a little about the dynamics that you're seeing in terms of institutional buyers? I know that for quite some time and, and really even pre-pandemic, multifamily, single-family mm -hmm. residential investment platforms were very attractive, especially in second-tier Sunbelt cities, to much loved by asset managers, let's put it that way. Does that dynamic continue to shape the housing market right now, or is this driven primarily by people who want retail buyers who want to live in the properties? Well, I think it's both. There's certainly strong consumer demand, but Institutional investors see this as an arbitrage opportunity because listing customers are so wary about the appraisal. Mm -hmm. uh, credit reform has made appraisals more independent. Prices have accelerated. So you're really worried that you're going to get this price that's too good to be true. And then the appraiser is going to tell you that the house is worth less than that. You've got to work it out. So people want cash who mm -hmm. are selling houses and investors have that in ample supply with capital markets just being free-flowing, mm -hmm. you've got institutional investors who have a lot of money to throw around and they're able to beat out retail home buyers because there's such a premium for cash right now. There's so yeah. much risk in, in selling a house to somebody who's borrowing the money and you don't have to take the risk. So mm -hmm. that's one side of it. And then the other side of it is that once you own the home, you're able to rent it out uh, pretty readily because there's just a bunch of people in America who used to get subprime mortgages and buy the home themselves, who have to rent. And they still want a yard and they still want you know, four walls of their own. Mm -hmm. So uh, they're not as motivated to go after apartments as they are to rent single family homes. So that's just going to be a good market for many years to come. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with my interview with Glenn Kelman. Welcome back to News Items. I'm here with Glenn Kelman. Okay, so we've kind of touched on this in a couple of different ways so far, but let's talk about the shifting trends or demographics in U.S. home ownership as a result of the pandemic from where Redfin sits. It's something you can just share that, you know, has, has emerged from Redfin's data set. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you've got sort of a front row seat or maybe a behind the scenes view mm -hmm. of how people are buying and selling homes. From where you sit, what's been the most surprising slash possibly lasting trend? Well, what surprises me is just how happy new home buyers are these days. They got a bigger place for less money. <laughs> I think what's interesting is that normally when people buy a larger home, they have less disposable income. But when we've surveyed our customers, 78% report having more disposable income. Really? Okay. So they're spending less on housing and getting a bigger house mm -hmm. and they love it. And that's just because they are moving from a dense coastal city to somewhere in the center of the country where land is more affordable and housing is cheaper. Yeah. And so that to me is the most remarkable trend because usually when people buy a house, 
it does create some financial strain. Maybe you get better schools for your kids, um, but sometimes that means a longer commute. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that means a bigger mortgage payment, and it just puts the family under pressure. And that's just a trade-off that I've seen time and time again over the last 15 years. And what really changed in 2020 is that the trade-off disappeared, that people were buying bigger houses and spending less. Yeah. And that's why you see more people retiring early. That's why you see one of two parents deciding not to work because they're not busting their tails to afford a million dollar house. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one thing. And then the other one is just about where people are going. So in low tax states, four people move for everyone who leaves. In Texas, this ratio is five to one. In Florida, I think it's seven to one. So it's just created a migration to low tax states, which becomes a race to the bottom. I've talked about this before, but I've sometimes been in favor of higher taxes just to fund better schools and better roads. I just think businesses need to do their part. And when you know someone in the Seattle city government called to see if I would support that this time or mm-hmm. what kind of taxes would ever cause me to move Red Fence headquarters out of Seattle, I told them that it wasn't even my choice anymore, that there were a thousand headquarters because we had a thousand employees who were going all over the country. Mm-hmm. And so even if I tried to get them to stay in Seattle, <laughs> they would leave for the lowest tax place. Yeah. And that has just really been a tight spot for these cities because on one hand, there's all these social justice problems that emerged over the past year. Black Lives Matter has been a huge issue. Police forces are now uh, depleted and cities are trying to figure out how to live up to all these new obligations, even as they don't really have the leverage to raise taxes, because if they do, people are going to leave. It's, you know, and it's, it's interesting, because I think maybe a decade ago, when people were, you know, futurists or culture watchers or or economists were looking at, you know, the way demographics were shifting in the US, I think there was an expectation that the intellectual class would be drawn to cities because of the energy, because they want to be around other like-minded, you know, techie type, the kind of city, the sort of the classic city offering. And yet it seems like that has made a U-turn, right? I mean, in a, in a strange way because of the pandemic. Do you, is that accurate to say that this migration to cities that I think was maybe predicted by the Richard Florida types of the early 21st century is that it's not going to happen that way? Well, I think that trend is going to come and go. Uh, cities are going to come back. New York has been down for the count more than once and always comes off the canvas. I do think it was unhealthy, the degree in America to which wealth had accumulated in Mm -hmm. San Francisco, Mm -hmm. New York, Seattle, L.A. If you drive across the country, you see all these little towns where housing is very affordable, where they need young people, where they need money. And at the same time, you have these fabulous concentrations of wealth in a few places. And to see it arc across the country um, to bring wealth everywhere, mm-hmm. even to Tulsa, Oklahoma or Mobile, Alabama, that is the best thing that could possibly happen to this country. So I know it's caused a little bit of anxiety because housing prices are going up in those places, but it's just equilibrating with what's already happened in California and New York. And at some level, I think we want that equilibration. We want wealth to be equally distributed. Mm-hmm. 
between California and New York to reach Utah, to reach Texas, to reach the middle of the country. There was speculation that the, that millennials and younger people had been priced out of the American homeownership dream, that it was because of a lack of job security, it was because of student loan burdens, it was because of a you know, lack of visibility into their future prospects for upward job mobility. Has that changed as a result of the pandemic? Are, are millennials and younger people in on this party? Well, I think what's changed is just that millennials got older. There is a demographic bump mm -hmm. that has benefited the housing market. So you just have a bunch of people turning 30, 35. And we can talk all we want about how one generation is different than another. But we all tend to act the same once we have children, yep. where we want a house with good schools. We want a safe neighborhood. Uh, we invest in more space. There's just a nesting impulse that comes when you breed. Yeah. <laughs> um, I put it off as long as I could, and then it happened to me too. So I think that's definitely driven the housing market. Maybe millennials were more suspicious about the housing market because they had this unique experience of the great financial crisis where right. housing brought down the global economy. Right. And that was different than my own experience where my parents always told me that housing prices only go up. And this is the safest investment you could possibly make. Wall Street is for affluent people who are really financially savvy. Housing, you can walk in, you can go up and down the stairs, you can decide for yourself whether this is a good buy. That seemed like the safe bet to me when I was a kid. And I don't think millennials had that experience at all. And now, of course, we say that millennials only want to live in cities and do Uber and all this other stuff. And then the pandemic ended that. So... It's really a crapshoot about where people want to live. I think it's driven in mostly by by where they can afford to live, by their student debt situation, as you mentioned, yep. and then by whether they have kids. Yeah, yeah. But do you think that home ownership is still a cornerstone of the American dream? Is that getting a new lease on life? The uh, American dream equals yeah. uh, home ownership? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just want to say that in May or June of 2020, I said that home ownership rates will increase for the first time in a decade, and they did. That there were all these people who had been living in an apartment in downtown Boston who realized they could go to the North Shore an hour and a half away and have a house and a yard and tomato plants. Mm -hmm. And they decided to do that and just commute once a week uh, when the office reopened or not at all. So I think homeownership rates have increased some. There still isn't the political consensus that there was 20 years ago to subsidize the American dream. It used to be that every mayor wanted to go to a ribbon cutting ceremony. It used to be there was bipartisan support for the mortgage interest deduction uh, from your taxes. And now I'm not sure that there is the same bipartisan support for the middle class. Um, you know, one party tends to focus on the underhoused and um, people who are really struggling financially. Mm -hmm. And then another party tends to focus on, on, on folks who are doing well. Uh, in the capital markets. But that's still the issue that worries me is that we nuked subprime mortgages. We should have, but we didn't create a credit facility that was government backed to replace it. And there's still just a bunch of people who can't qualify for a mortgage. So I think it's still a K-shaped housing market where right. rich people are buying a ton of properties and housing rate and homeownership rates are going up. But there's another group that we haven't figured out as a society how we're going to help them. You know, when I was a kid, my neighbors were like plumbers and electricians, and mm -hmm. I still don't see those types of folks always able to buy houses in a lot of American cities. Yeah. All right. So final question. Number one tip for a first-time home buyer in this market, what would you tell them? It's really simple. I've been doing this job for 15 years. 
And I see people worry about buying at the wrong time or paying the wrong price. And I do think those are legitimate concerns, of course. But Mm -hmm. the biggest mistake you can make is just to buy a house you don't love. Um, I've gotten a screaming deal on a house that I hated. And I just Mm -hmm. ended up having to sell it 18 months later, which is financially disastrous. Um, If you're only going to live in a property for 18 months, you should rent it. And so... You can talk yourself into a property because you're tired of the bidding wars or because you're just tired of looking around. And I would say hold out for something you like. And then when you do, go at it really hard. More people right now are upset with us because they wish they had bid higher Mm -hmm. than they wish they'd bid lower. And that's a conundrum for us because we always want to be on your side. and We try to be careful with your money. But we also fundamentally believe that when you buy a better blouse or, you know, a nice pair of pants, it makes you happy for like five yeah. minutes. But when you live in a better place, it makes you and the next generation, your kids, happier in a profound way. So it's worth it. I would do it. It's a lot of trouble. It's a pain in the ass. Yeah. But it's worth it. <laughs> um, and that's why I love what I do. That's almost like spoken from from the mouth of Warren Buffett. I mean, he feels similarly about certain stocks, you know, like <laughs> live in it, live in it. Buy right? and hold, yeah. Yeah, buy and hold, right? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's really hard yeah. um, to justify getting a deal on a bad house. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of gross stocks. There are very few mm-hmm. growth properties. All right. Those are, those are words to live by. Glenn Kelman, Redfin CEO, thank you for speaking with us on News Items. It's been great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my co-host John Ellis's newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. You can check out my own website where I cover the global market of things at investableuniverse.com. Tune in tomorrow for John Ellis's extended interview with journalist David Barbosa on all things China. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was Simran Singh.